Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. You can begin by opening in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Um, If you weren't with us last week, you missed the opportunity to see one of our elders, Mark Mark Walters, get pelted with rubber uh, balls using the shield of God as his armor, as his defense. Uh, We've been in a series lately um, called I Am, and we've been talking about who God is, and really when we talk about who God is, we talk about what God does, because so much of, about, of what we know about God comes from how we see God work in the lives of people and in, in our world. In, in fact, one of the things that we studied a couple weeks ago was um, the phrase Yahweh or, which means the Lord is my, anybody remember? Light. Or is the word for light in Hebrew. And we're talking about the Lord being our light. And we studied Psalm 27 where it says, The Lord is my light in my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And you come down a couple verses later when we're talking about I am, you know, God and him being a light. And one of the things we talked about was in verse five or so, it says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of his temple. And the whole idea behind that Psalm is for God to be our light, we first must seek God. See, I'm the kind of person who, who sometimes likes to know the answer instead of know God in the midst of seeking the answer. And the reason I bring this up is because we're gonna study not the same phrase, but the same idea in one of our passages today. We're gonna to be studying about um, how God appears to, to Abram, to Sarah, and especially to a young lady named Hagar. And the name that we're gonna to study today is the name El, say El, E-L, and then say Ro-E. Roe. Okay, so El Roe. It's the God who sees, or the God who sees me, or the one who is seeing me. And when we say the God who sees, it can kind of sound sometimes like, you know, the, uh, I, I, was, I was thinking yesterday of that, of that song we sing around the Christmas time, because we're almost, you know, a couple months away from Christmas. And, um, and, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, and you're like, man, this the whole Santa Claus thing, is this a little scary? Um, and sometimes we have this idea of God that's like, oh, he sees me. And that kind of freaks us out. Um, But one of the things we're going to discover today is how God sees us in some of the greatest distress of our life, even when we don't recognize that he is there already with us. So Genesis chapter 16, as we study this morning about who our God is. Um, Now, when we open Genesis 16, um, you're going to have a couple of key players. You're going to have a lady named Sarai, and you're going to have a man named Abram. You're going to have uh, God, of course, and then you're going to have a servant girl named Hagar. Now, 
16 uh, goes into 17, which I know is a brilliant observation there. Um, we're going to look at 17 next week, and we're going to look at El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. So we'll pick up a little bit more of Abram and Sarah's story next week. We'll talk about it today, but we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, we want to focus primarily on how God interacts with Hagar today in our passage. So Genesis chapter 16, near the front of your Bible, we are going to read this entire passage together. And so um, if you're able to, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? All right, here we go. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian servant or slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realized that she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she has treated me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarah, Here your servant is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. The angel of the Lord also said, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. So she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? This is why she named the spring a, a well of the living one who sees me. It is located between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of God. Uh, Father, we pray that you would, we pray, God, that you would meet us here and that you would help us to understand the words of the story so that we can better trust you. And God, there are some of us today going through challenging times, some of us today thinking, does God really see me? And God, this story reminds us that you see and that you care. And even though our ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, God, we want to trust you in what we have been given today. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray for the glory of God, our Savior, and Jesus, his Son. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So El Roi is what we are studying today. The God who sees or God of my seeing. And the idea behind God who sees or God of my seeing is this. Is that when God sees people, 
He shows concern and he extends protection, okay? So, so this phrase is kind of used uh, in Exodus as well. When um, God looks down and, and he actually says it more of like an auditory sense, he says, I have heard the cry of my people and I'm going to do something about it. Now, one of the things that's a struggle for many of us and it's a struggle for our characters in the story today is that our timing is not God's, all right? To God, timing is a whole nother thing. To us, it's like, all right, lunch is coming here, dinner's coming here. To God, a thousand days is like a day to God, and one day is like a thousand years to God. For a being who is eternal, timing is really a secondary matter. But to us and to the people in this story, Abram and Sarah, timing is crucial. Many of you know about who Abram and Sarah are. We're, we're introduced to them in Genesis chapter 12. And God comes to Abram and he comes to Sarah as they're living in the land of their patriarchs. And, and, they say, and God says to them, hey, I want you to follow me. I, I want to make you into a people. I want to give you a land. I want to make you a blessing. And I want to bless actually the whole earth through you and through your offspring. And Abram and Sarai, they, they pack up everything. And by faith, they take a couple of people with them from their, from their father's house. But they leave all that they knew. They leave all that they trusted. They left all their family relationships behind of those who weren't traveling with them. And they said, all right, God, we're going to follow you no matter what it means. And they, they go on this trek, um, several hundred mile trek, down to the place where God would show them. Because God didn't say, hey, I'm going to take you down here. He just said, I'm going to show you the place. And so there's, there's trust in this relationship with God. There's, there's trust in learning to walk after God. And this is the whole idea about seeking God. Seeking God is saying, God, I'm going to trust you because I can't always fully see what you are doing. I don't have the big picture, but I'm going to trust what you tell me to do here and now. And so we come a couple chapters later into Genesis 15, and God comes to remind Abram of his covenant, of his land and his seed. And God has promised to make Abram into a great nation for his glory. And, and the truth is this, God will do it. Um, but Abram has to, again, learn to trust. And so we come to um, the 16th chapter of Genesis, and very quickly we're introduced to a problem. You see it in verse 1 here. It says, Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children to him. Stop. <laughs> okay? So for a, a man who is 75 when God comes to him and says, follow me, and his wife is 65, they don't have any kids. And not only that... You, you know, there's, there's a cultural element here going on as well, because to have kids in the ancient world was a very important thing. Not only was it um, a, a blessing from the Lord, it was also a way that you had retirement at some point, because there was no social security. There's no, no social systems that are perfect in, in helping care for you. You'd have kids, and then as you got older, your kids would then help care for you. And, and it's a serious matter for a, a man and woman to be childless in the ancient world because that left them without this heir. And, and it was considered to be a mark of success. So, so not only is there this um, years upon years of longing that Abram and Sarah have and wanting to have a baby, um, there's this promise from God and they're going, God, but you said, and it's been 10 years since you said. 
I don't know what you were doing 10 years ago. You know, I was thinking this week, going back about 10 years, my eldest son was a year and a half, getting ready to turn almost two years. So he's like this tall now. He was like that tall then. I, two of my other kids weren't even born at that time. We'd been up in Michigan. We were still in our first place that we were living up here in Michigan. We'd been up in Michigan for like three or four years. Oh, 10 years ago is, is in many ways, it flies by, and in many ways, it's a whole nother lifespan ago. Think about it. You're going day in, day out. You're planting your crops. You're harvesting them. You're caring for your flocks and your herds, and you're learning what it means to walk after God and walk after God and walk after God. And 10 years later, what God has promised to you, you still have no vision of how he's going to accomplish it. And that's where Sarai enters in, into this narrative with something that creates chaos within the family. Notice with me, please, verse 1, the second half. There's no children, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So in the first two verses here, you have a problem. They've been promised a child, we already know that, but there's no kid. Abraham is 85 years old. Sarai is 75 years old. Biologically speaking, this is already impossible. However, with God, nothing is impossible. But Sarah's going, all right, I must have heard wrong. We must have heard wrong. God said we would have a nation. We would have a people. There must be something we need to do to make God good on his word. That's essentially what's happening here. And, and what they end up doing is they end up using a female servant or, or a female slave, and this is an Egyptian named Hagar, to, to do what in the ancient period was equivalent to having a surrogate mother. All right? This is a culturally accepted practice at this time. It would not have looked weird for this to occur to everyone around them, except to Abram and Sarah. What they had been told was, I will give you a child. And so here you have Sarah and Abraham going around God, re really trying to micromanage God's plan and say, God must have meant something different. Here's how we can try to accomplish this on our own. If you'll notice in these first couple of verses, God is not even mentioned except for when Sarah says, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Right? So, so she holds, she seems to hold at least, a little bit of a grudge against God. God has stopped me from doing this, therefore I must go about doing this. But not in these first several verses do they even ask God, God, are we still on the path? God, you said you'd give us a nation, but here we are. 85 and 75 years old, respectively, and we still don't have any kids. So Sarah goes to Abram. Instead of going to God, Sarah goes to Abram, and she says, I know how we can do this. Take my servant, Hagar, and have a child through her. She's going to be like a surrogate mother. And Abram uh, agrees to what Sarah said. So, so Abram here has a as an opportunity that, that sometimes uh, we step into and sometimes we don't. His opportunity is to say, hang on, Sarah, maybe we should ask God. 
That's something he could have said right there. He could have said, hang on, I, I, I know this yearning is deep. It is for me too. What does God say? But he just agrees. He goes along with it. In, in some respects, this story mirrors what happened in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. You know, Eve comes to Adam and she says, hey, I've heard this fruit is good. And he takes it and he eats leaving his responsibility to care for his family and to point them back to the creator. Abram is 85 years old, and both of these people are, are saying, mm, there must be another way we can do this. But this is a very, very human thing. But what happens when we engage in micromanaging God's story and in doing things that God never told us to do Chaos tends to result. Note, please, the chaos. It says here, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Verse 3, so Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. And this happened after they'd been living there 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realized that she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. All right? So here's a young lady, presumably, put into a position to be a surrogate mom and she was never intended to be in that position. And I, I, think, I think that Sarai's thinking, oh, this will just go on, no problem. We'll just do it this way, it'll be fine. And she didn't take into account that there is um, emotions within a little um, young lady named Hagar. That, that, that you don't just do something like that and it doesn't upset the whole dynamic of the camp. So Hagar, has this contempt that she projects towards Sarai. And Sarai feels this, and she goes back to Abram. And she says in verse 5, You're responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she treated me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. So she wants God to judge, but she also doesn't want to seek God first in all of her ways. I go back to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. A couple verses later, it says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And what that phrase means in its context is to understand how God would want me to live. The biblical principle that Sarah should be living out here, in that we should live out, but we often fail just like Sarah, is instead of pursuing what I want or even pursuing the promise God has for me and doing it in my own strength, God, what would you have me do right now? Now, it's going to be another 13 years after this story before the child comes. So there's this long process of waiting and trusting and waiting and trusting. But in that 25-year span, God is doing something powerfully within the lives of these people. He's teaching them who he is and that he can be trusted, even when they don't know the path that they are going to take. So... Um, Hagar's there. Her role culturally was to serve Sarah. She has essentially gone from being a servant of Sarah to, to a surrogate mother for Sarah and Abraham. And this introduces a whole bunch of stuff. This micromanaging turns into chaos because now there's these emotions and these passions and they're going back and forth and back and forth. And it says in verse 6, Abram replied to Sarai, 
Here, your servant is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. So you have, here, be the surrogate wife. Be the surrogate mom. And now she gets mad. Sarai's like, I'm going to get mad back. And she mistreats her. And Sarah's the matriarch of the house. And so for the most part, her word, her word goes, not over Abram's, but certainly over the people who were her servants. And chaos and struggle ensue instead of experiencing the blessing in God's timing. So 10 years have happened. Uh, they've been settled in the land and uh, Sarah is still longing and Hagar runs away. Hagar runs away. And the problem here, of course, is that Sarah doesn't go to God first. They take God's promise of making a nation, and when it doesn't happen in their time, they say, essentially like what Eve said in, in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say this? Did God really say that? And doubt enters into this, and Abram becomes passive in this, and Hagar is placed in the middle of this mess, and the question is left of, God, what are you going to do? And here, the story zooms in on Hagar. It says in verse, um, verse 8 here, um, sorry, in verse 6, that Sarah mistreats her so much she ran away from her. And so the next time we find the story, just in the next verse, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, what's interesting about where Hagar is at is the wilderness on the, or the spring in the wilderness on the way to Shur is on the way back to Egypt. Uh, so you can kind of think, I don't have a map for you today, but you can kind of think about the maps we've looked at before. You've got Israel up here, you've got Egypt down here, and then there's, they come around this part of the Mediterranean Sea. They're basically going, or she's going down because she's coming back to her place. When you're, when you're stuck many times, what you end up doing, what we end up doing is we go back to where we were last comfortable, and so she keeps going and she goes back to a place and she's stopped by God on the way back to, I think, her land of origin. And she's at this well on the, on the way to shore. And it says the angel of the Lord found her. And note, this is the first time that God intervenes in the story. And that's fascinating because God is, of course, still there. He still sees all this going on. But up until this point, no one's even cared about what God's opinion is on the matter. And so here, I think God goes, it's time <laughs> because he's going to do a work. He, he's going to do a work to help this young lady trust and walk after him. And he's going to do a work in Sarah and Abraham's life that, that is still not complete. But he comes to Hagar and the angel of the Lord finds her. And by the way, the angel of the Lord here is, is likely just a reference to a, an appearance of the Lord. And the reason I say that is in verse um, 13, where it says um, that Hagar calls the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. It says, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? So, so Hagar's understanding, I believe, is that she has seen uh, a vision, an appearance of God in her life. Uh, but the angel of the Lord finds her by spring in the, of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, slave of Sarai. All right. He, he's tying her to, to what her role was to be there. Where have you come from and where are you going? 
Isn't it just like God to come up to people and just ask the question, the, the, the probing question, wondering, I think sometimes, how will he respond? How will she respond? He, he comes to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden after they've eaten the fruit and they've sinned. He says, hey, Adam, where are you? Now, God knows the garden. He made the garden. He knows where they are. I think he's having Hagar begin to probe, what are you doing? Why are you out here? Let's think about this. Let's talk about this. And she replies, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And it's fascinating what happens next. Verse 9 says, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. You must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. Now, this was a young lady who presumably... Um, wasn't asked whether she wanted to become the surrogate mom of this child. This is a young lady who, of course, reacted to that and had contempt for her mistress, but then was treated very, very harshly. The the word that's used for how Sarah mistreats Hagar is a word that's used, um, and it describes... Um, very, very harshly. It's used in Exodus to describe how the Egyptians would treat the, the Israelites, actually. And, and so there is a lot of, of personal injury. There's a lot, I don't know if it's emotional or what. And, and God says, I want you to go back and I want you to re-engage that situation. I, I don't want you to keep running. I want you to return. And you can imagine for her, she's presumably young, she's with child, she doesn't know what to do because she's getting a whole bunch of flack coming from this side of Abraham's house, especially from Sarah. And she's left now with a question, will I trust what God is telling me or will I go on to write a different story for myself? And God says, you must go back and submit to her mistreatment. And There's many of us. I was thinking about this while I was working out this week. How many of us would ask someone to go back and submit to that? It would be really tough for me to say that. And I don't think that that's like um, advice for all times and in all circumstances. Sometimes we say, well, because this is bad exegesis. When you say, well, because Hagar went back, you must go back to your situation. That's not what I'm saying here. But God comes to her, and God being all-knowing, God being all-powerful, God being sovereign over that situation says, will you trust me? That's essentially what he's saying. Hagar, will you trust me and not trust what your eyes can see? And then he gives her a promise. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. All right? And this comes in part because part of the blessing he's given Abraham is, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, it's not through this child alone that God was going to do that. But since this um, incident had popped up, God is dealing mercifully and graciously with this, with this incident. And he says, Hagar, you're not going to be left out. You're not going to be forgotten. You're not going to be cast to the side. I have a purpose and a plan for you, not only for you, but for you and your people. This is a lady who has lost her home. This is a family where Sarah had lost her maid, where Abram had lost his second wife and newborn child, and there's chaos and disaster, but God comes and he says, I will work this for my glory. So the why question of God, why would you send her back? 
I don't know. Other than that, it is for God's glory that he sends her back, and he asks her to trust him. Will you trust me in this? And he gives her the promise. You'll have a great nation, too many offspring to count. And the, Lord, the angel of the Lord says to her in verse 11, you have conceived, you will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael. And the word Ishmael means God hears. So every time she calls her son's name, Ishmael, Ishmael, Ishmael. Every time she says his name, she's going to be reminded about something. God has heard me. God has heard me. Will God be faithful? Wait, Ishmael, God has heard, God has heard me. God has heard me. This is constant reminder, even with the name that is given here, that God will be faithful to his word. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. And he says in verse 12, this man will be like a wild donkey. All right. This man will be like a wild donkey. In our, your translation might say he, he will be like a wild ass. All right. Culturally speaking, we're talking about an animal here, and it's the animal likely called the onager. And the reason why this matters is because in our cultural context, if you call someone a wild donkey, it's usually not a positive thing. But this is a positive blessing that God is giving to her. This is, this is a blessing he's giving to her. And he says, you will, um, this man will be like a wild donkey. An onager is an animal that lives out in the wilderness. According to Dr. Randall Smith, it's not owned by anyone. It, it, it's owned by the, like, the tribes in the area, but they don't put this wild donkey into a pen. They let it roam free because it's prized for its passion. It's prized for its strength. And every year when they go out to, to breed their domesticated um, donkeys, they'll take them out there and they'll allow them to breed with this wild onager. And there's, there's several around. They're territorial like many animals are, because going out there allows their, their, um, their heritage or their breed of, wild, of donkey in their camp to be stronger. And, and so it's an animal that is wild. It's an animal that is um, alone. It lives out by itself. You don't go near onagers, okay? They're, they're not an animal that you want to try to tame. Um, they live away from people, um, but Ishmael is going to be like a wild, um, a wild donkey in that this. He's going to be alone and he's going to be away from people, but he's also going to be prized because onagers were very, very highly valued to the people. And so she hears this going, I feel alone. I feel away. God, where are you? And he says, your son's going to be like a wild donkey. He's going to be alone. He's going to be away. But by the way, he's going to be valued by the people in the surrounding nation. So that's one way to understand that. I think a helpful way to understand that. It says in the second part of verse 12, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. The idea behind this, you could also translate it, his hand in everything, in everything his hand. Um, the idea behind this, according to Dr. Smith, is that he, he might be a person uh, who is tied to the economy of the world. He, he may be alone, but he's tied to other things. He, he's going to be a person who's going to have means. He, he's going to be involved in society, even though he's going to be somewhat distant from living within society. And then the last phrase here, 
He will live at odds with all his brothers. Um, Live at odds can also be translated, he will dwell in the presence of, or literally it could be translated, he will dwell to the face of his brothers. In other words, he's going to live in a proximity, but he's not going to live right next door to his people. So he's going to be a person who's alone and who's away, who builds up a nation that God is going to bless. He's going to be prized in the world around him. And she hears this, and she's alone at a well and going, God, do you hear me? And she goes, and God says, yes, and here's what I'm going to do for you and for your tribe. And so she says to God in verse 13, she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. El Roy E. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. El Roy E, the God who sees. She has been broken down. She is lonely. She's a young woman who doesn't know where to go or what to do except run back to her home. And God comes to her and he says, Go back to your mistress. Trust me, I will bring you great blessing despite your circumstance. And Hagar names God. She gives God a name. Now, this isn't like the divine name that he's known by for all eternity. We talked about that name already. But this is a name that that says, God, you've seen me. God, God, you know where I am at because you have actually come and revealed yourself to me. And Hagar didn't deserve this. Abram didn't deserve it. Sarai didn't deserve it. You and I, When God has come to us and said, here's the path you're walking. That's not the path I want you to walk. Look at my son. Look at what I have done for you. We don't respond to God because we deserve it. We respond to God because of his mercy, because of his mighty work in our life. But Hagar names God here. She gives God a name, El Roy-E, because God has seen her amidst her distress. And not only does she name God here, she names the place, and, and for the rest of that generation, they would say, I'm going to be'er l'chai ro'i, which means the well of the living one who sees me. So, hey, I'm going to go down to be'er l'chai ro'i. Oh, that's where God saw Hagar. And she names this to be reminded about here's where God has done something amazing something unexpected, where God has inserted himself into my story regardless of where and what decisions I have made in my life. So so, so what happens next? Hagar goes back. We find out from uh, verse 15. Um, Hagar goes back, which means that she trusted God's word. She didn't have to, but she said, God, I will trust you. She goes back, and we find out Um, that she gives birth to Abram's son, and that Abram gave him the name Ishmael, God hears, to the son Hagar had. And so by Abram giving the name Ishmael to the boy, he's taking responsibility for this child. And this child's going to be a part of their life. And in the next chapter, we're going to pick up with Abram and Sarah again. But for now, most of Hagar's story is written. There's a a few other things that, that happen in the text. But we go back to Abraham and Sarai. But Hagar goes on to raise her son, to live in this camp. And I imagine as she went back to this camp, things were not all of a sudden smoothed out. (laughs) I imagine she went back 
And there is, to some degree, some conflict, some resolution, maybe a lot of forgiveness that needed to be practiced. We don't know what the next 13 years look like in this camp. And wouldn't you just love to be a fly on a tent in that camp to go, what is going to happen now on this next episode of Days of the Tent Living or something like that? Um, She goes back and she trusts God. She goes back because God says, and she trusts God. God. God inserts himself into this story. And she trusts his word in an imperfect situation. So how do we begin to apply this to our lives today? Well, a couple of observations. It's very easy for every one of us here, some of us more than others, to try to micromanage God and to try and micromanage his plan. Many days, I would rather know what I need to do or I want to see an accomplishment rather than the daily work of simply knowing God more fully. God calls us to be in relationship with him. He he calls us to put down all the things that distract. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with you. Not because you and I have earned it, but because he loves you. Because he wants to know you better personally. And he wants you to know him better personally because he wants you to grow in trust. Resist the urge to micromanage God. Because when we micromanage God, it often results in chaos. Now, God can show his glory in chaos. Even more, God can show his glory through great obedience and trust. Um, Second, so don't micromanage God. Second, be faithful to your calling and be faithful to God's word. This kind of goes with what I just said. The best way to avoid the chaos that comes from poor choices is to stay close to God daily. Be in prayer. Be in the study of his word. Ask God. You can do this out loud in your house, in your car. Say, God, how should I walk today? Like, not physically walk, but how should, I, how should I walk with you today? What would obedience and faithfulness look like in this moment? It'll always be consistent with the Bible. But many times, this, the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom and direction for that very thing you face right then and there as you learn to wait and to trust Be more concerned about walking with God and inviting him into your day than what actually happens in your day. We waste a lot of energy on what we think might happen in our day. It's better to say, God, I trust you. Help me to be faithful to what you've called me to here and now. I think another thing for us to remember is God always hears the cries of the oppressed. God always hears the cries of the oppressed. And and on this side of the picture, we might say, but God, did you really hear me here? And I'd say, look at Hagar's story. She endured a lot. And at a certain point, God said, I hear you. I hear you. God always hears the cries of the oppressed. Justice will come for those who have been harmed for those who have been hurt. There are situations I know within people's lives in our community where the situation you are facing is really, really tough. You've experienced something that has hurt to the core, and it might be emotional, it might be relational, it might be a physical thing, 
someone has done something to you, someone has said something to you, God hears those things. Walk with God. Trust God today and know that he is both merciful, but he is also very just. And God will care for you. Finally, this. um, God is gracious even when we micromanage his promises. God is gracious. He doesn't have to come to Hagar, but he does. He, he He doesn't have to do a lot of things, but he does. He meets us when we don't deserve it, and that's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus not not because we deserved it, but because of his great love for us. Um, Galatians says this, when the fullness of time had come, which is an encouraging and a discouraging phrase sometimes because it's God's fullness of time that came, not all of ours. But in the fullness of time, according to God, when that had come, it says God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of, as sons and daughters of the king. In God's perfect timing, he sent his son. Why wasn't it 100 years earlier? I don't know. Why wasn't it 100 years later? I don't know. But in the fullness of time, according to God's word and God's revelation, God sent Jesus to save people from their sins. And that's the invitation to us today. You you might be here and you have a relationship with God and God is saying, I want you to trust me in this next season of life. I want you to trust me and walk with me in your marriage. I want you to trust me and walk with me as you get ready to go back to school. I want you to trust me. I want you to walk with me as you encounter whatever it is you face today. But, but some of you here may not have a relationship with Jesus. And God says, I want you to trust me. Here's what I have done for you. I've sent my son, my only son, the one whom, I'm lo- whom I love, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sin so that we are no longer separated by your rebellion, but we are brought together because when I look at you and you've trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, I look at you and I see my child adopted into my family, made one of my very own. Isn't that an amazing story of God? God came forth to this world. He became flesh. He made his dwelling among us so that we might dwell with him forever. We're going to head into communion in just a minute. I want to invite the worship team to come forward and Pastor Tom to come forward. We're going to go into communion in just a minute here. And as we take communion, we are remembering what Jesus has done for us. We never want to forget what Jesus has done for us because you and I were people, are people whom God loves so much that he sent his son. We may not name a well or we may not name a son in light of this, but we can stand here and we can sit here and we can say, God, you have seen me. And one of the ways we remember this is by taking the bread and taking the cup, by remembering that his body was broken for us, by remembering that his blood was shed for us because of his great love and grace. Let's pray. Father and our King, we thank you for the chance we have to celebrate communion this morning. We thank you, God, that you are a God who sees. Some of us, um, Lord, we, we sit here today And there's things in our life where we say, God, are you really paying attention to this? And yet, God, you do. (laughs) You, you, You see all things. And in your perfect timing, 
you lead us on to the next thing. God, in your grace, you give us the ability to walk after you. And sometimes that means really challenging things. Sometimes it means confronting sin in our life or in the lives of others around us. Sometimes it means, God, having to learn to wait and to wait and to wait. But God, I thank you. In the midst of all these, you offer us a relationship by faith. You don't leave us to wait alone. You say, trust me, walk with me. And God, here we are this morning. We want to trust. We want to walk. Help us in the moments when it's really challenging to turn our eyes off our situation and again on our Savior. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.